All right, we're talking about the, the secret to great relationships today. And you, you, again, you might wonder, says, well, you know, do I, how vital are relationships anyway? Like, how do I really need, I, you know, I got Jesus. Do I really need anything else but Jesus? Well, here's the thing, everybody. God has wired us for relationships. We need relationships in our lives, and we need those relationships to go well. There's, there, it's not an option there. We need those relationships. And as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it is very interesting the way chapter 12 ends. Because here's how chapter 12 ends as the lead into 13. It says, Paul writes, and now I am going to show you the most excellent way. He didn't say, I'm going to show you a good way to go. I'm going to show you something you might want to think about in your life. He says, I want to show you the most excellent way. Then he talks about love. He talks about the decisions of love. He talks about relationships and how we can make them better. And so this is absolutely vital. I want to read through what I am calling the 15-point plan to relational success. And it's on the back of your bulletin or it's on the screen behind me. And I'm going to go through and I'm going to number them for you, 1 to 15. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7 says this. Love is patient. That's 1. Love is kind. 2. It does not envy. 3. It does not boast. 4. It is not proud. 5. It is not rude. 6. It is not self-seeking, seven. It's not easily angered, eight. It keeps no record of wrongs, nine. Love does not delight in evil, ten, but rejoices in the truth, eleven. It always protects, twelve, always trusts, thirteen, always hopes, fourteen, and always perseveres, number fifteen. We're going to begin to dissect the first two points in this 15-point plan. That's patience and kindness today. This plan here everybody's point somebody asked me this past week so now 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 john is this just about like romantic relationships or is this just about like marriage no 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 this plan covers relationships whether that's family friends neighbors work or enemies it covers all of these relationships that exist and you'll notice as we read through that just a second ago every single one of the 15 is a decision it's a choice and every single one of the words that was used in here in the original greek language in which it was written in was a verb which tells us what? That the 15-point plan is about decisions we make and it's about actions we make. Choices and actions, and they work together. Last thing you need to know is kind of a lead-in from last week is there is this massive difference between dictionary.com's definition of love and divinity.com's definition of love. They're two very, very different. Dictionary.com, it's a warm feeling. God's definition of love, it's a decision, void of feelings whatsoever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, God, for your word that gives us such incredible practical help. And Lord, you encourage us to take this path and to follow this plan above all things else. Because you tell us when you boil the entire Bible down to one thing, you say it's all about love. And so here we get a picture of what it really means to love. And God, all over this room, every single one of us, we're in relationships. We're in relationships, and some of us have relationships that are going generally generally well, and we want them to get better, and there are some of us in this room that we have a relationship in our our lives right now that's not going well at all. And God, whether, whether it's good, mediocre, or really bad, I pray that, Father, that you would be with us today, that you'd speak to us through your word, and that you would, you would shine a light and help us to see something. God, that we need to see that can turn our lives around when it comes to relationships. Bless us, every single person in this room, with just awesome, fantastic, excellent relationships. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, point number one in the 15-point plan is patience is long-tempered. What does the word mean? 
specifically in the Bible, patience means to be long-tempered. Now, who wants to be that way? Who wants to be long-tempered? But that's exactly what the word means. It's a Greek word, makrothemeo, and it is very common in the New Testament, used quite often to be long-tempered. It is most often used with people not in circumstances in the Bible. In other words, this is what I'm trying to say. So this is more often used with patience with another person, not because, you know, you got mad at the computer and you wanted to pick it up and throw the computer out the window, right? This is more about people and how you feel like picking other people up and throwing them out the window sometimes. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about the area of patience here. Now, check this out. It is the decision, everybody, to be inconvenienced, interrupted, irritated, uh, by other people without resentment. Inconvenience, interrupted, and irritated by other people without resentment. To be long-tempered. Patience, everybody, is like a shock absorber. It takes all the potholes and all the rough spots in the road, and like a shock absorber, it just absorbs them, and it soaks them up. This is what patience does, and it makes for a smooth ride for everybody else. Think about the times when you've chosen patience and the result of that, and think about the times when you chose impatience and the negative effects of that. Now, I want us to watch a video clip real quick about somebody who kept choosing patience in a difficult situation. Finally, he blows his stop. Didn't have to. He could have made a choice not to blow his stop, but he chose impatience, and it ended very badly for him. So let's just watch the video screen behind me. Excuse me. Can I get a headset? Certainly. Thank you. Uh, miss? I'll be right there, sir. Where's your headset? She's busy right now, but it's coming. For crying out loud, you're missing important plot points. Ma'am? Could you give me a second, sir? Could I maybe get that headset, please? Do not raise your voice to me, sir. I wasn't raising my voice. Okay, just calm down. I am calm. I just want my headset. Sir, our country is going through a very difficult time right now, and if you're not going to cooperate... I don't know where a headset ties into patriotism. Is there a problem here, sir? I, I don't think so. Can you come to the back of the plane with me so we can have a talk? A talk about what? There's not a problem. This steward is just... Keeps... Flight attendant. The flight attendant keeps ignoring me when I ask. Calm down. I am calm. What is it with you people? You people. Oh, now, wait a minute. I don't mean you people. I mean you people. Sir, I will not tolerate any racist behavior on the plane. This is a very difficult time for our country. I, I know that. I'm not a racist. I just want to watch the movie. I'm only going to say this one more time, sir. Calm down. I'm calm! Okay, so here's the thing I want you to think about, right? He's in a tough situation, and we might be, when we're in some kind of similar situation, or even worse, we might say, I had no choice. I had to lose my patience. I mean, you see what the guy was doing to me? You see what the flight is? You see what people do to me? I had, I had no choice. I had no choice when I was driving down the street. Right in my car. I had to lose my patience. I had no choice at the office. I had no choice. In my, I had no choice. Here's the reality. You always 
have a choice. Nothing is forcing you. And there's tremendous power in that. And you can choose to be patient or impatient no matter how bad the situation is. Now, patience, everybody. Patience has to involve time. You simply cannot choose patience without involving time. Patience means I'm going to give someone my time without getting angry or frustrated. We need to learn to be, I think, if we're having a problem of being impatient with other people, it could be that we need to learn to be patient with ourselves. Sometimes we're incredibly impatient with ourselves, and that spills over to everybody else around us, like it just spews on them. Or we're impatient with God, and then that spews. Look what King David writes, Psalm 40, verse 1. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He said, I gave God plenty of time. Didn't get angry, resentful, frustrated. I was patient. I was patient. I waited. Some of us have a relationship, and we want that relationship to go better, some kind of relationship, whatever the relationship might be. You might say, you know, I want this relationship to go better. And it could be that the one thing that we need to do to make that relationship go better is it just needs more time. It needs more quality time. Add that to it. It always involves time. Okay, kindness. Point number two, kindness. What does the word mean? How do we define it? It means this, to serve another person graciously. To serve somebody else graciously. It is the perfect counterpart to patience. It is active, good, active, goodwill to somebody else, including our enemies. Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 5. He says, you know what? If you see somebody who doesn't have a coat, just don't think, oh my gosh, they need a coat. To actually go and get them a coat, even if it involves giving them your coat. And he says, even if that person is your enemy, don't think, gosh, my enemy's cold. Oh, I feel good about that, but somebody should give them a coat. No, it says, go and take your coat and give it to your enemy. And then that famous phrase, go the extra mile, Jesus is the one who originated that whole thing. He says, even if your enemy needs help, go the extra mile and help your enemy out. In Matthew chapter uh, 13, or Matthew chapter 11, we're told Jesus says, you know, Take my yoke, it is easy, and my burden is light. The same word that is used there for light is the same word of kindness. God's burden, his yoke, he's kind. He's kind towards us. Patience takes up all the bumps. It smooths out all the potholes and things that are out there in life, and it makes things pleasant. That's what patience does. Now look at kindness, its counterpart. Kindness creates pleasant situations. Patience takes a nasty situation, it makes it okay. But kindness over here actually creates a great situation. And how does it do that? How does it do that? It has impeccable manners. It's a gentleman or a lady. It's wonderful. The most kind and pleasant manners. Uh, Kindness smiles. It waves. It looks somebody in the eye. It says hello. It holds a door. It steps back and says, no, you go first. These are the kind of things that kindness does. It lends a helping hand. It sees a practical need, and it fills that practical need, right? Something needs to be done, and it does it. Basically, kindness just makes other people feel like life is better. It's the first thing we're told, and it carries a lot of weight. What is love? Number one, first definition, it's patience. It's being long-tempered. And the second thing that love does, if we want to be a loving person and choose this most excellent way, is we go around and we share kindness. We make life better for other people, and that involves exceptional manners. We actually act and we do something. Over, over to Christmas. Before Christmas came up, I needed to get an electric blanket for my wife. And I'm at, the, I'm at the church office, and it's about 6 o'clock, and so I'm running over to Macy's real quick to see. And so I'm going run over, and, and, and Dave over here is there. He says, I'll go with you. So we go over there together, all out of electric blankets. They don't have the right size. 
And so I said, well, where do you have them? Well, we got a couple here and there and blah, blah. I said, okay, you know, with everything I got to do, I'll figure out. I've got to get the blanket. So uh, I'll figure out a way to get this for my wife so, you know, I can make some points with her for Christmas, right? Because I always get the wrong thing. So I'm definitely going to get the blanket. So I go back to the office, and I'm in meetings to like 9.30, 10 o'clock that night. I walk out of my last meeting out of the office, and there's Snee standing there. He's got the electric blanket. Now, he didn't have to do that. I had no idea he was going to do that. That is an incredibly kind act. He saw something practically and went out and did it. And what kindness does, it's active goodwill. It's excellent manners. actually goes and it does something for somebody else and makes life better. That, my friends, is kindness. Now, do you have a relationship in your life that needs to be turned around? How are you going to turn that relationship around? I want you to consider Romans chapter 2, verse number 4. Very important. Look what it says. God's kindness leads you towards repentance. Kindness is a great way to turn a relationship around. So God looked at us and said, you know what? My relationship with my children on earth isn't where it could be. I want it to, tur- I want it to be better. I want it to turn around. So what did God choose to do? He chose to show exceptional and extend exceptional what to us? Not wrath and not fury. God chose to extend exceptional kindness to us as a way to turn that relationship around. How if we are in a relationship and we say, you know, this relationship isn't just where I want it to be. I want it to be in a better place. Here's what you do according to the biblical plan, according to what God has modeled for us. You begin to show kindness kindness to other people and that begin that's gotta be genuine kind of be the fake phony thing or whatever they're just trying to get a response but if you want to heal a relationship you begin to act in genuine ways of kindness and manners towards another person this is actually documented you'll find there's a, a guy his name is john gottman and he writes about this he runs a marriage institute and he says you know i can take a couple and i can see them in, in in marriage and if they treat each other with bad manners i can predict that their relationship is either going to end badly or it's just never going to go well so this kindness factor plays a huge role in how our relationships go and we see this modeled in jesus christ you think about how he dealt with people whether it was a man woman or a child whether they were rich or poor, whether they're lovable or unlovable, he always treated people with exceptional manners. He treated people with respect. This is what we learn from this. So I'm going to try to give you something to do every single week because this 1 Corinthians 13, this plan, this 15-point plan is so utterly practical. I'm going to try to give you something to do every single week that you can actually utilize from the moment you step out of this auditorium. Okay? So here it is. So this, this week, see how many times you can let other people go first. See how many times you can let somebody else go first. Why do I say that? Because the city of Corinth, where Paul is writing this letter to, they were always stepping on each other's toes, whether it's verbally or going through a food line. There's very practical stuff that you find right there. And they would just cut each other off all the time. So here's the thing, what I want you to think about. See how many times you can let the other person speak first. And while they're speaking, check this out. You ready for this? Really listen. Like instead of while they're talking, thinking about, oh, man, that outline's coming in your head. You think, I'm going to say this, this, and this. If they would just shut up, I can really, I'm going to wow them with what I say. Once they just learn to shut up, I'm going to say what I'm going to say. Instead of doing that, instead of doing that, just focus and really listen. Like use your ears and really hear what they're saying. Do that. Or think about this. How can you let people go first like stepping through a door? Right. Or out the aisle, like we talked about last week or in traffic, you know, wave somebody on through or when it comes to food or the copier at the office or the computer or the TV at home. How can you let somebody else go for see how many times you can do that this week? Very practical. And it's very, very loving. Now, here's what I want to talk about. 
I want to talk about here for a few minutes. I want us to go all the way back and talk about when did relationships fall off the track? Like in biblical history, when do we see that that happened, that relationships just took a nosedive? When did that happen? Genesis chapter 3. And what was going on in Genesis chapter 3? So in, in chapters 1 and 2, God says to Adam and Eve, okay, man, enjoy yourself. This is an incredible. This is the Garden of Eden. This is, this is paradise. Enjoy everything. There's a tree in the middle. I want you to stay away from that. I'm going to give you one choice to, you know, to make here. And one thing. There's only one thing. We always say, God's a God of all these rules and regulations. I mean, I just can't stand it. Here's one, there's one rule. There's God. One rule. One rule to stay away from the tree. So what did they do? Made a beeline to the tree. Okay? Right? And so... What happens when they disobey God and they eat of the fruit? What is the first emotion that you see happen there? Fear. Now, this is critical for us to have better relationships. Please hear me on this and do the hard work of looking inside of yourself and look inside of those who are near and dear and around you and figure out what those core fears are. So here's the fill in the blank that I really would like you to put here. Figure out your fears. Figure out your fears. This is so incredibly important. So what happens is immediately the first negative emotion that comes into play here is fear. They go into hiding. God comes along and says, hey, what, why are you hiding? And Adam says, we're afraid, so we hid. I'm afraid, so we hid. Fear from that moment until today has been undermining relationships, everybody, causing people to withdraw and to hide. Every single person in this room has them. I mean, you might be, you know, Put on this tough exterior. You don't have no, no, no. <laughs> Every single person here has a number of core fears, like one, two, maybe three at the most core, deep fears. And they're not just surface stuff. You've got to go underneath and figure them out. What are some of those core fears? They reflect, they affect our relationships every day. How about this one? A core fear of failure, feeling inferior that I am not good enough. And when that strikes us, we have a certain reaction to that, a reaction to it. The fear of rejection. I'm not wanted. The fear of being abandoned. I don't matter. I'm not heard. I'm not seen. I'm not valued. We have a fear and they drive us relationally. They, they, they cause us to make decisions that in hindsight we would have never made. But in the midst of that fury of that fear, we do those things. The fear of being controlled. There's a lot of guys who struggle with the fear of being controlled. And either they won't get married or once they get married, they feel like a noose is around their neck. The fear of control. The fear of being humiliated. The fear of being powerless. There's nothing I can do to change this. And how about the fear of shame? I am a mistake or I am disgusting. This deep fear that we have inside of us. It is very important if we want to make an attempt at improving our relationships that we, every single one of us in this room, that we take the time God's saying to us in Genesis chapter 3, Take the time to figure out what your core fear is and how you react when that core fear is triggered. Now, everybody think about it for a second. How would that affect your relationships if you understood your core fears and when that fear was triggered, how you reacted? You know, and how there's different ways. I want to there's a there's a good companion book to first Corinthians chapter 13. It's by Dr. Gary Smalley called the DNA of relationships. I held it up in the first service. A guy came to me and said, you can go to Amazon.com and read the thing for free. So uh, passing along that information to you. But uh, how would that affect our relationships, everybody, if we understood that? How do I know what my core fears are? Again, you have to look deeper. But when things consistently set you off, when that makes your impatience meter kind of ramp up, right? When things consistently do that, what gets you? What? Huh? 
If you'll look deeply at those things that consistently do that, you will begin to hone in, narrow in on what your core fears are. Now, think about that, how that will impact your relationships, right? When certain people say something to you and it triggers it and you just blah, you just blast all over them for whatever the reason that is or, or you stuff it and you're passive aggressive. Think about if, you, if you're able to figure that out. Now, check this out. What if you took it a step further? What if you took the people who are closest with you in your home, your family, or people you work with every day, and you thought first, you thought for a second, hey, I wonder what their core fears are, and you really began to think about that. And you watch them. You watch how they act in certain situations. And you recognize what caused them to get a little bit ramped up. He said, you know what? Next time I'm in, in, in a conversation with this person, I'm going to make sure I say things a certain way so it doesn't trigger their core fear. How would that impact our relationships? Now, let's go back to the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 3, we got the first negative emotion. We've got fear immediately comes in. Now let's go to chapter 4. Who can tell me? First service couldn't do it. They don't know the Bible. You all know the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. Tell me what pivotal event took place in Genesis 4. Please, somebody. Oh, that's Genesis chapter 3. Oh, man. You are not getting lunch today. Okay. <clears throat> Here's a Cain kills his brother Abel. Has anybody heard the story of Cain killing his younger brother Abel? Anybody out there? Anybody? Thank you very much. Cain kills his younger brother Abel. What's going on there? Let me tell you what's going on there. So Adam and he have kids. They have Cain and Abel. Cain's the older. Cain's the older. Abel's younger. Right. So Cain is firstborn. He's firstborn, and he has a tremendous fear of inferiority. That he's not good enough. That what he offers isn't good enough. And so what happens, they come and they make this sacrifice to God. And Abel, young little puny brother, you know, the little brat's trying to upstage older brother Cain. And he has this great sacrifice and it's acceptable to God. But older brother, firstborn Cain, his isn't good and he knows it. And it triggers his core fear of inferiority and it sends him through the roof. Now, what do we know? He has a fear of inferiority, right? Number one. And number two, he's firstborn. What, do we, what does it tell us about somebody who's firstborn? Well, what do we know about firstborns? Firstborns tend to, don't have to, but tend tend to be a little bit uptight. They tend to be success-oriented, goal-driven, detailed people. That's what firstborns are. Can be a little more anal. Most of the United States presidents were what? Firstborns. 21 of the first 23 astronauts in the United States of America, what were they? Firstborns. Architects, doctors, lawyers tend to be people who are firstborn. So, you know, you might not want the last, you, if your doctor is a sur- your surgeon is going to operate on you and they're last born, I mean, you might just want to think about that for a minute, okay? <laughs> they might say, well, we just cut around here or whatever. So it does, sometimes doesn't work well. So what do we know about Cain? What about Cain? Not, you know, if you're a surgeon and you're last born, I'm sorry. But uh, so what do we know about Cain? So he has this tremendous fear of inferiority and he's a firstborn and Abel shows him up. And so how does he react? He doesn't react well. It's a recipe for murder. How could that have gone better if he would have understood his core fears and a little bit more about himself and a little bit more about his younger brother? Things could have turned out better. What if his parents understood better? The more we know and are able to figure out our fears and those who are closest to us, the better things are going to go. Now, let me try to give you a practical example from my everyday life. So it's, we're over the Christmas breaks, right? We're all just having a good time over Christmas, and I'm at home, and there's a lot of eating going on, right? Did anybody eat a lot over the Christmas? So I haven't really, I haven't, I haven't really exercised since, uh, like, July. I've been, I've been, I've been very busy. This is like, the, I think this is like the longest streak I've ever gone where I've just like, pff, done nothing. Okay. And so I'm just minding my own business. I'm in the kitchen, you know, I'm eating a little bit and my wonderful, beautiful wife, uh, Krista, she just looks at me and there's no lead up to this. There's no like working up to the moment. There's no working. It just looks at me and she says, John, you're fat. <laughs> Bam. Just like that. You're fat. 
You look terrible. Really? Now, how did I react to that? How did I react to her just saying that you mean you're fat? How did, how did, how did that react? Did, 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 did that anger me? Did I spew back? How could you dare you say that to me? Did I, did, did I have sleepless nights that I worry about? Did I immediately go to the mirror? Did I cry? Did I mourn? No. You know what? Boom. I did nothing. I did nothing. Didn't bother me one bit. It's not a core fear of mine. Did nothing for it. Didn't bother me one. I have a sleepless night. I didn't have an angry word for her. The only thing, the only thing that, that, that I did is I said, well, I'm going to start exercising. It's very logical. It's very rational, right? That was me. That's because it. it's not my core fear. Now, everybody, what if I said to her one day, I, I'm not even going to say it. I'm not even going to say it. Because it doesn't matter if it's an example or not. It all counts the same. And we're going to have the apocalypse. So, man, Armageddon is breaking out. It's going to be terrible, right? Core fears. It's very important that we all figure out our core fears because they drive us relationally. It's very, very, very important. Okay, second thing. All right, I'm going to go quick because I'm running out of time. Focus on what you need to change. This is where all the power lies. All right, I want to try to describe to you why all the power lies here. So, um... All right, let's do it this way. I'm sorry, I'm cutting things in my mind here real quick. Uh, Genesis uh, chapter 3. So the first negative thing is fear. Fear comes in, and then so God comes, and they said, okay, we ate from the tree. And so God says to Adam what? He says, what, 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 you know, what did you do? And what does he do? He points. And he, who does he point at? He point at himself. He points at Eve. He says, that woman that you, God, gave me, that woman, she did this to me. God says, Eve, what did you do? And she said, up. Oh, that snake over there, that filthy, rotten snake that you actually, God, did. God, you did it, and the snake over here did it. So what is our natural reaction, everybody? Our natural reaction is very natural, is that when we have a relational problem, that we immediately start the blame game. We start pointing to what the other person needs to change. And what I want to tell you is there's this step right here, this picture of pointing at somebody else, there's no power. I'm powerless right now. Get that visual in your mind. You mean to where all the power lies? When you go like this. Power. This is power. Why? Let me explain to you. Let's say there's an imaginary person standing right here. Let's just say it's a guy for whatever. Okay? And I, I want to say, you know what? I hope this guy, this guy right here, he treats me with respect. I hope he treats me right. I hope he, you know, he treats me like a friend. And, and so I do everything that I can, you know, in my power to influence that we have a great relationship. Do I have any guarantees, though I've done everything I could, that this guy is going to treat me like a friend and treat me right and treat me with respect? Do I have any whatsoever? Is there any? Zero guarantee. Zero guarantee. Now, is there any guarantees on my part about what I'll do? 100% guarantee because I make the choice. I make the choices about what I do. And that's why when we're in a relational problem, our tendency immediately is like, what? And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but man, if you just knew the situation I was in, that's what I'm talking about. Just because you had that thought, it proves it. This is our natural reaction. But it's a powerless situation to point to the other person and think it's the other person. If they would just change, everything would work out. It's powerless. You want to put yourself in powerful situations. Quit allowing the blame game to rob you of power. All the power lies right here when you look at yourself and say, here's what I need to change. Here's the decisions that I need to make about what I'm doing. And forget talking about other people. They're going to do whatever the heck they're going to do anyway. You've got to do what you're going to do. And it doesn't matter how bad of a situation you're in. You can choose the right thing no matter how bad it is. And I'll show it to you. Philippians chapter 4. Look what Paul writes. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about those things. 
Is he writing this from a mountaintop somewhere? I mean, is this guy sitting on the beach watching the waves? Is he just enjoying it? No, he's writing this from a prison cell. 2,000 years ago, he's writing it from it. And it's not like the Arlington County Detention Center that's right down the street, everybody. No, it's not like that at all. It's as bad as bad can be where you're abused every single day. And he's saying to us, doesn't matter how bad the situation you're in, you can still, the power is in your choices and what you choose to think about and do. So here's a great verse to remember, 2 Corinthians 10.5. It says this, take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. That's a great prayer for you to get up and pray every single day. Because Lord knows you're going to be faced with situations that are going to make you think wrong, negative, bad things, whatever, make bad choices. And what we want is we want God to help us with his help. We want to corral all those thoughts that are outside of his will. And we want to lock them up and throw them away in their own prison somewhere. And we want to release just those thoughts and think about the things that are in keeping with God's will and God's plan and God's path. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the 15 decisions of love. This is exactly what we want to do. Final point everybody is this follow this path to maturity now this is this is this this really got me because i've seen you know i i've i've spoken on first corinthians chapter 13 for years i mean like half the weddings i do they choose first corinthians chapter 13 so i read this chapter often i think about it and i'm gonna tell you something that's always confused me is verse number 11 verse number 11 has never made sense to me i mean we're talking about love and you know resounding gongs and clanging cymbals and love is patient love is kind i get it i get it i get it i get it i don't get verse 11 out of nowhere and look what he says when I was a child, this is out of nowhere. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things away. What? Well, what, are you, what are you doing in the middle of this? Why are you talking about that? And now it makes total sense. Complete sense. You see, immaturity does not choose love. Immaturity, doesn't do, immaturity does not choose patience and kindness. And I'm not going to keep a record of wrong and envy. And, it doesn't choose that. Immaturity chooses the opposite, and it does it all the time. But here's what maturity does. Maturity chooses these things. It chooses patience and kindness. Look, I'm over the age of 18. So categorically in the United States of America, I am, I am, I'm categorized as what? An adult. Just because the United States of America says I'm an adult, does that mean I'm an adult? No, it does not. And i got to tell you, for much of my life, past the age of 18... I was a child, and I spoke like a child, and I made decisions like a child. I was a baby. Babies make baby decisions, and Paul's saying it's time to grow up. Think about what babies do. You come in from a long day of work. You could dog tired. Man, the kindest thing in the world is for everybody around you just to let you sleep. You put your head on the pillow, you're out like light. Do you think the baby sleeping down the hall from you cares how tired you are? Do you think they want to show you any kindness? They'll scream their guts out all night long. They could care less. Or how about a baby? You ever seen a baby when a baby gets hungry? It's like they're playing and they don't even know they're hungry. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait a minute, I'm hungry. And you can see the look in their eye and you're like, ah, you panic. This has happened to me twice in my life with my kids. I got two kids. And it's like, okay, wait a second, I'll get you food. No, no, there's no wait a second. They, you could be in the middle of a restaurant. They'll humiliate you. There's no patience. There's no kindness. And, and, and how about with the envy thing? You know, do, do, do little kids, do, do they choose not to envy? No. They see another kid who has a toy that they want. What do they do? They go and they take it. If the kid won't let them have it, they punch them and they take it from them. Those are childish things. Those are, but what does maturity do? What does it mean to grow up? It means to choose the 15 things that we have labeled for us totally clearly and practically in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We make 
those decisions. Last thing I want to say is this. I want to speak to the men for just a second, just the guys for a second. There is a nasty rumor going around, guys. There's a very nasty rumor out there. I've heard it by people who know absolutely nothing as well. Stupid, dumb people. Sorry to say that. They know nothing as well. And they say this. They say there's a Peter Pan syndrome out there and that basically adult, categorized adult males in this world, in this country, are just a bunch of baby boys. They haven't grown up. They're just children. They're immature. Men are immature. And thing, I also hear it from people who know. I hear this stuff from doctors and people who research all this. You know, most of the men, they're just way behind it. Women, they choose maturity, and men are just, you know, the whole Peter Pan syndrome, and they're just immature, and they don't do this. And every time I hear a doggone man, that angers me, irritates me. You know why it irritates me? Because as I look at myself and look at the men around me, I say, that might be true. <laughs> that, might, that might just be true. So here's the last thing I want to say to every guy in this room. Man, let's, with the women kicking our butts about this thing, let's, you know what, it's, it, let us grow up. Let us be men. Let us be men. And put away childish things and grow up and choose the 15 things that see, we see. It's little children who act in little childish ways of impatience and kindness and envy and not being forgiven. That's children. That's child talk to do that. Men, we have to stand up and say, you know what? I'm done with being a child. I'm going to be a man from now on. That's what I'm going to do. Right? Sweet. All right. So I want to uh, thank you. I want to help me welcome Brooke Owens is going to come up here and is going to speak to us for just a second. This one, I got Ryan's mic. Oh, thank you, you already clapped, so thank you very much. So, Brooke, here, here you go. So I, you ever heard that it's the phrase, well, it's not rocket science? Anybody ever heard that say, it's not rocket science? Well, and just in case this is, we have a rocket scientist here. Brooke is actually a rocket scientist who's going to make all of this clear to us. Uh, I, I asked Brooke to share for a few moments this morning because Brooke has gone through a very difficult time. But even though the time was difficult, Brooke decided to make some very powerful choices. And that's what I want you to hear. So without further ado, please, Brooke, thank you. Hi, guys. Uh, am I on? Can you hear me? Um, my first powerful choice was to wear the same sweater, apparently, as John. <laughs> but he forgot his headscarf, so whatever. Uh, let's start with a joke, right? Pastors like jokes. Uh, what has two thumbs and got cancer for her 30th birthday? This girl. <laughs> and uh, what's my sign? Baby, come on, you know it's cancer. <laughs> Last summer, I was diagnosed with uh, two types of cancer, both unrelated to the other and both treatable. Did you hear the word treatable? That's the good news. That's where I say thank you, Jesus, before I get on with the rest of this. So what do you do when you're a day past 30 and you get that call from your doctor? I don't know what you're supposed to do. I'm sure there's a manual somewhere, lots of books. I cried. <laughs> and I called my mom and my dad, and I texted my best friends. And we sort of just took a moment to feel and let it hit us and grieve a little bit. And I ate a lot of chocolate. And then the next day, I got up. And I started going about the, bez- the business of kicking cancer like it was my J-O-B. Because as much as it stunk and as much as I didn't want it and whatever, all the things you can say, uh, I figured I had two choices, right? One, I could drown in the process and get totally lost. Or I could try to own it. And drowning creeps me out, so I tried to own it. So I'm a nerd, so I started researching things like chemo and radiation and surgery and all the side effects and made a list of a bazillion questions to ask my doctors. Yes, they hate me. (laughs) My appointments always take a long time. Um, But that gave me like a tiny shred of control to walk into the doctor's office with. 
So, so what? So blah, blah, blah. I see a lot of doctors, ask a lot of questions, make a lot of decisions, and spend a lot of money. My treatment plan basically boils down to this. A uh, couple surgeries in New York, four months of chemo right here in D.C., and six months or six weeks of radiation somewhere. That's like the, uh, that's like the triple threat of cancer treatment. So I, I got it all. Um, so let's talk about chemo. Um, yeah, I hate that word. Even now, I just see this red poison dripping into my body. So I had to sort of figure out how to reconcile being okay with being a willful participant of the introduction of this poison into my bloodstream eight times over the course of four months. How do you do that? Um, first of all, I just want to say, can I just tell you that I have the most amazing friends ever? Like, I thought they were cool before I got sick, but the way that they've been kind and funny and cool and compassionate through all of this has just totally rocked my world repeatedly. So some of those friends offered to hang out with me during my chemo sessions. So when I got my schedule, I sent out an email, and it was something like, hey, it's hotter than the NFL draft picks. It's the fall chemo lineup. Who wants to be my date? Do you know that within 24 hours, I had a date to every session? My friends are awesome. And for me, that was really empowering because there's this dread that sort of sits on your shoulders the night before chemo. It kind of scares you, and it's kind of nasty. But that was softened for me a lot by knowing that I was getting to hang out with some of my favorite people. And when I look over my shoulder at the last four months, yep, I just finished chemo, so that's good news. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, when I look, look back at those months, I don't see this dark, nasty time that we're never going to talk about. I see a winter season with some really rough patches. But you know what else? I see that Jesus is good, and I see that he's still for me. And I also have these cool moments and memories with my friends all tucked in. Like this amazing art show I got to see the night before chemo with my best friend Maria. Or the way my friend Cassie, who is the whitest girl ever, by the way, was rapping and dancing to a T-Pain song to try to distract me while the nurses did their fishing expedition in my arms. Awesome. And, um, I mean, do you know how many Halloween costume options I had as a bald chick? Come on, I was the old man from Six Flags. It was awesome. And creepy. I get it. Yeah. So what's next? So next I have a surgery up at the end of the this month up in New York. And we're going to do the same thing. My best friend's going to fly in. We're going to see a Broadway show. We're going to pretend like we're cool enough to be on vacation in February. And then comes radiation. So I'm going to run away. I'm going to go to sunny Arizona with my other best friend because when else is it going to be okay for me to run away from my job like that? My goal here is to scam cancer. I mean, if cancer thinks it can come up into my house and bring all that garbage, then I'm going to make him do the dishes, take out the trash, do the laundry. I mean, I'm going to get something good out of this. But here's the deal. Here's the straight dope. And really, people should say that more often, right? Here's the straight dope. It's such a great, it's underused. Anyway, Jesus got me through this. His peace and his grace throughout this process were so tangible for me. I have never so resonated with the refrain, it is well with my soul. For real. Like, it meant something, and it wasn't fake or cheesy or whatever. I'm grateful for that. It was actually a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. But that's Jesus' job, right? To kind of take care of us when we're in a bad spot. So I figured that my job was to own it as best as I could. There's this cool passage in Scripture in Deuteronomy 30:19. It says, I've set before you today life and death, uh, blessings and curses. Now choose life. 
Cancer sucks. Cancer is death. But I guess I just hope that as I get ready to face the next couple rounds of treatment, that God continues to do his part and that I can do mine. That for the most of the time, I choose the good stuff, life and hope and the noble things, more often than I choose poorly. And that's my prayer for you today, too. Whatever the elephant is in your room, that you see it as a cool opportunity to own your part as best you can and be amazed at how cool and exquisitely Jesus works out his. So that's all I got. We're going to dismiss with a word of prayer. Uh, Brooke and I are going to be on the side over here. The prayer team is going to be over here. If you want to come say hello to Brooke and you see the sign over there, if somebody, if you'd like somebody to pray with you um, about anything whatsoever, Brooke has made some very powerful choices and uh, I hope all of us can do the same. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Brooke. I thank you for your hand upon her life. I thank you, God, for the powerful choices she's making. Here's my prayer. God, do something in and through Brooke's life, uh, relationally, emotionally, physically. Bless her in ways that are way beyond her imagination, God. Just open up the windows of heaven and pour out your blessings upon her. We thank you for her. And as her family, her church family around her right now, God, we just want to wrap our arms around her and tell her we love her and that we're proud of her. And uh, Father, for everybody in this room, we all face difficult decisions. Help each one of us to make powerful decisions with what we do, to choose love. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.